Hi, I'm Gareth Kane. Welcome to the Net Zero Business Podcast. So this week I have something slightly different for you. This week it's me being interviewed a few years ago by Anthony Day as part of his Sustainable Futures podcast. Now Anthony has recently retired the Sustainable Futures podcast which is a great shame because it had some great content on here. So in a way this is a bit of a tribute but I felt uh, our discussion went down some, some very interesting lines. So here's me being interviewed by Anthony Day. Today I'm talking to Gareth Kane, who is a sustainability expert and an author of a number of books. Gareth, welcome. What actually started you on your sustainability journey? Well, thank you, Anthony, for having me on today. It's a great pleasure. Um, the start of my story, I have to sort of rewind back uh, quite a few years now. It's, I suppose it's, all, it's coming up on 19 years. Um, I happened through a long story, which I won't go into, uh, to be teaching English in the far north of Russia, in Murmansk, 200 kilometres north of the Arctic Circle. And one day they took us for a, um, a day trip and went through a town called Monshagorsk, which in the local Sami language actually means beautiful place, but it was anything but, because all around the town, all, particularly downwind of the town, was just devastation. What should have been your sort of archetypal Russian fir trees it was just nothing. It was a dead zone with a few bleached stumps. And the reason why was very clear, because if you looked up, there's a huge cloud uh, emanating from chimneys on the horizon of where we stopped. And that was from a nickel smelter, and it was a big cloud of acid rain. And I think it was two things that made me really stop and think. One, you know, you, you really have to sometimes experience you know, because I could taste the acid in my mouth and I could see nothing but destruction. You sometimes have to th be in the middle of that to have an emotional reaction to really make you want to change your behaviour. So I decided almost there and then, or certainly mulling on that in the next couple of days, that I was going to change my career from being a, a sort of jobbing project manager in the public sector to uh, really trying to make sustainability happen and stop that um, stop that type of destruction. The other side of it was I'm an engineer by training and back when I did my engineering degree there was no such thing as sort of engineering for a sustainable future or the various variations in those phrases that you see around the country today. If you wanted to do environmental engineering it was about sewage. <laughs> so um, and environmentalists tended to be ecologists and I, I sort of flirted with ecology for a bit, but I, I, I didn't really, it didn't grab me the way, you know, I, I think I'm culturally an engineer. I come from, you know, my father's an engineer and uh, I come from that sort of background. But standing there and seeing the ecological destruction and this sort of pathway back to a piece of engineering, which was the nickel smelter, I suddenly realized that the skills I had problem solving and engineers what we needed it wasn't an ecological problem it was at that point I thought definitely an engineering problem and now I'd probably say well it's a bigger issue to do with the economy and, and everything else so it was a real sort of road to Damascus moment for me and when I came back to the UK then I, uh, I got a job at the Engineering Design Centre in Newcastle University looking at 
designing out ecological problems and um, on the drawing board and then uh, I suppose my career progressed from there. Right and that was what 10, 15 or even more years ago was it? Uh, 15 years ago it was uh, 98 I started at Newcastle University so um, 17 years ago almost to the day I suppose. And since then you've set up Terra Inferma and you've been working with some of, uh, of the world's largest corporations. Yes, um, it's it's quite interesting because I, you know, I'm, a, I'm a, the archetypal one man band working out of a room in my family house, and um, you know the client list that we've worked with has been is you know, some of the biggest organisations in the world: the NHS, BBC, uh, BA Systems, Johnson Matthey PLC, News International, um, and you know quite a few others. So that in itself surely is encouraging that there are major household names who are taking sustainability seriously. Well, I think so. Um, I, I tend to take issue when people are down, down beat and say, we're not really doing this, we're not really doing that, nobody's interested, blah, blah, blah. And only to a certain extent is that true. There's certainly a core set of organisations who are really taking this seriously. And you know, research by Harvard Business School has shown that when they compare what they define as high sustainability companies against low sustainability companies, the high sustainability companies outperform the low sustainability companies on financial terms by about 50%, no matter what economic metric or financial metric you use. So you know, the business case is very, very clear. And yet, um, if you remember, at the time of the uh, Davos conference, the World Economic Forum, back in January, PwC published its global CEO survey, and there was comment at the time that they didn't mention climate change anywhere in it, because they said, well, our global CEOs just aren't interested. Yes, I find that... I sort of find that quite hard to believe from my own experience, uh, because there are huge companies, as I say, who are taking this uh, very seriously. And the only way you can take sustainability seriously in an organisation is to have that commitment from the top. It just won't happen. Otherwise, you know, this is, um, you know, to, for, excuse the, pl the plug, but this is why I wrote my second book, The Green Executive, was because at that time in my consultancy, really the... Um, the, the debate was moving from a sort of environmental management level up to sustainability leadership. And when people were asking me to engage with the leadership, I couldn't find any models out there produced by anybody else for that engagement. So I, I, I produced my own, and that then evolved, evolved into that book, The Green Executive. Right, that you said was your second book. How yes. many have you written now? I've written two full-length books um, and then three uh, dose shorts for dose sustainability, which are um, sort of meant to be snappy 90-minute reads. So they're not the same length as a full-length book, but uh, five t uh, titles in total. Right, so your latest book is one of these uh, quick reads. Um, yes. According to what you say about it on uh, YouTube, it's born out of frustration. Tell us a bit about that. Yes, well... There's, a, there's a, a gap between, I suppose, many people's aspiration of wanting to really make a difference 
and the techniques they use to try and attain that. So I, we, we keep finding, uh, you go into organisations, for example, and they'll have, say, well, we've set up a network of green champions and they're going to help us facilitate this change. And if you ask who are these people, they say they're volunteers. And then you find out they're usually quite junior in the organisation. And, you know, that makes me pull my hair out because large organisations have a reporting structure for a reason. They have targets and objectives embedded in, uh, into people's job descriptions or, or people's annual reviews for a reason. And why you're trying to change, make these fundamental changes for sustainability as a sort of bolt-on voluntary thing on the side rather than integrating it into that reporting structure, I'll never know. So um, the way I, I started musing on this, uh, the, the 80-20 rule, um, which is, as many of your listeners will know, this idea that the, the there's quite an imbalance between input and output on many, many things, book sales, anything else. You know, the, um, the average book sale uh, author sells about 2,500 books, but the only people who actually make money are the, the sort of J.K. Rowling's and E.L. James's of this world. Uh, so a very small number of authors are responsible for a huge percentage of the uh, of book sales. And this goes with lots of other things. So, you know, if you think about your working day, um, you know, we all get frustrated that we spend half our, you know, huge chunks of our day deleting spam and sitting in meetings which aren't really going anywhere. And you think, well, all I did when I went in, uh, in today was ask one person the right question. Suddenly something happened. Okay. And that's my big achievement for the day. So it's really trying to get this, uh, tap into this, identify those sort of vital actions which will actually make a difference and clear away the sort of undergrowth of all those, of all that sort of bureaucracy and uh, tail chasing and all that stuff and really focus on what matters. Okay. You uh, quote a case study in the book. Uh, you talk about a construction company which agonised over how to engage its site personnel and you agreed with them that it was a difficult problem but also you agreed its impact was low because 90% of the key sustainability decisions were made in the design office. Yes. So, But are you saying then that it's not always necessary to engage the whole workforce, but just, just the key players? Um, what, what I would say, not, not quite, uh, you, you don't have to engage at all, but if, say, 20% of your employees are, have influence over 80% of your impact then the 80-20 rule suggests that you should spend 80% of your effort on those 20% employees. Okay, yeah. Uh, because they are the ones that are going to make a difference. Now, it's not to say um, that, you, sh that uh, you shouldn't engage the others, but one of my frustrations is there's a, a sort of inbuilt assumption that we have to be very egalitarian and treat everybody equally and all the rest. But for something as vital as sustainability, I would rather people focus on the changes which will make a real difference and if that's engaging those small number of people with a very large influence on sustainability then then that's what you should do right okay and when you engage people should you take how they act at home uh, you know recycling switching off lights uh, walking instead of driving and all that sort of thing as an example 
Um, no, I, it's interesting because one of my first employee engagement um, contracts, I was actually asked to do that and I refused. And uh, this yeah. brings in the topic of one of my other, because this, this idea developed into the topic of one of my other do shorts, which is Green Jiu Jitsu, because this was a major engineering company. And frankly, I was terrified of the idea of walking in in front of all these, you know, hard-nosed engineers uh, and telling them to switch off their TVs at night. You know, it would be very patronising. Yeah. So I persuaded the client instead to let me present sustainability as an engineering problem requiring engineering solutions. And we, we the whole the work engagement workshops, rather than me telling them anything, was all about getting them to apply their knowledge to the company's sustainability issues. And it's phenomenally successful. So I call this screen jiu-jitsu because the, the, the traditional engagement technique of sort of sloganizing people, I, I like into boxing where you're trying to pump all the other person into submission. In jiu-jitsu, the martial arts, you see your opponent's height, strength, uh, speed, momentum as opportunities, not as threats. So green jiu-jitsu is about seeing people's strengths as an opportunity to engage them in sustainability rather than seeing them as sort of somehow damaged and you want to, you know, you want to help, you want to fix those problems. So for engineers, you talk about engineering. A uh, wonderful case study I saw recently in the NHS where they engaged nurses by persuading them that, say, switching off unnecessary medical equipment would allow patients to sleep better on the wards so they would recover better mm -hmm. and save energy. And it's, it's that tapping into the, the prevalent culture in the organisation uh, first, which really develops, uh, delivers results, rather than this sort of slightly wishy-washy, uh, lightweight, tree-huggy approach of trying to make people feel a little bit guilty about, about what they do for a day job. That's, uh, that's a very interesting approach. There's a lot to do, of course, isn't there? We're all in name at least, progressing towards a global low-carbon economy. Uh, the British government has got a target of 80% um, uh, reduction by 2050. What do you feel about our progress? Are we making progress? Are we actually going to achieve what's necessary to uh, stop dangerous climate change? Are we actually going to be able to get there? Um, we need to keep accelerating I think but we are accelerating if you take for example the UK's um, energy mix back when I started in sustainability we had 2% of our electricity came from renewable sources and 90% of that 2% was hydroelectric in Scotland mm -hmm. and now it's pushing 18% and all of that is wind and solar you know they say that uh, solar capacity doubled in the UK last year not the number of installations the capacity doubled in a year yeah and that is uh, you know that is a surging technology a surging sector a new business model yeah it's interesting you should mention that because yesterday I was at the community energy conference in Manchester and uh, I hadn't realised what the potential is for localised renewables. It's enormous. We haven't scratched the surface yet. But uh, in Germany, they are making very, very significant advances. And obviously, the opportunity is there for us to do the same. 
Yeah, and we have to we have to think of the way we measure these things as well because a lot of renewable energy isn't measured because it's not connected to the grid. Mm-hmm. So if you think of all those standalone uh, road signs with a solar panel on top, oh yes, none of those count. <laughs> the, um, because the road sign has never been connected to the grid because it doesn't have to be. Yeah. yeah. Um, if we didn't have the solar panel on top, of course, it would have to be connected to the grid. Yes. So uh, you know everything from pocket calculators to to road signs and and people having these um, you know the use say of uh, solar panels on on your roof. It's only measuring that. Um, it's only measuring that electricity if it feeds into the grid. It's not measuring the stuff you use directly in your house yeah. when the sun's shining and you've got the, the radio on or the fridge on or whatever during the day. So I actually think the contribution for from renewables is much larger than than the official figures. And we have to develop, just in the same way as we have to develop new ways of using that um that power because it's intermittent, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah, um, we have to find new ways of of measuring it properly, so we yeah. can really appreciate where we're going or uh, how well we're doing. So, in summary, are you optimistic for the future? Well, I think you have to be. Um, the I don't like the doom and gloom merchants um, because you know most of the the signs of is that we are moving quite swiftly now in the right direction um i don't think doom and gloom helps anybody you're certainly not going to persuade anybody who's not interested in sustainability to get interested by depressing them because we've got automatic sort of psychological shutters that come down just block all that stuff out and again that's a bit of the Going back to the green jiu-jitsu thing, that's part of the thinking is if you want to enthuse people about sustainability, you have to work out how that, how sustainability overlaps with their interests. And that will be different for different types of people, but there's always a way. So, you know, some work's been done in, um, you know, the US uh, in terms of um, presenting to climate skeptics, presenting renewables as a form of energy security mm-hmm. and cutting reliance on overseas countries and things like that. And that's a wee bit of green jiu-jitsu as well because it's it's really thinking about what will inspire the audience uh, and tapping into it that way. Whereas the traditional green activist approach um, sort of says, well, if you're not going to sit in a, outside a TP knitting yogurt um, then uh, then you're not taking it seriously and I, that, that's you know that's a non-starter that's not going to get anybody anywhere it just makes the the people who do that sort of preaching feel better yeah I'm glad to hear you say that as well um, winding this up a bit uh, Gareth if you were talking to somebody in education maybe thinking about their A-levels or perhaps just starting um, university what would you tell them about the sustainable future, about the world that they're um, on the point of joining? Um, I think there's two routes into sustainability. I think there's the route which um, I took, which was to get broader non-sustainability skills, in my case engineering, and then move into sustainability. 
or there's the route of starting off wanting to become a sustainability expert in inverted commas. The only problem with the, the second route is it's very crowded. Everybody wants to do it. So in some ways, you know, if you've got an interest in chemistry, uh, I would advise people to do their chemistry, uh, A-level, do their chemistry degree, and then start looking at green chemistry, which is very, very important and vital for the future, because those skills will be the ones which will be in most demand, not people who understand life cycle assessment. Right, okay. Well, I'm sure we could talk for hours. Thank you very much for uh, your ideas and insights, Gareth. It's and been a pleasure, Anthony. Okay. Thank you very much. And maybe we'll invite you back in the future because everything's changing. The whole world is changing. And I'm sure you'll have more to tell us uh, if we call <laughs> you back again. Thank you, Anthony. Thank you for now. Cheers. If you find this episode of the podcast interesting, please do me two wee favours. First of all, give it a five-star rating to help others find it as well. And secondly, subscribe via your usual podcast provider so you'll get every episode into the future. Until next time, goodbye.